That's right. Hallelujah for the cross. Had it not been for the cross. Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome. If you're worshiping online, glad to have you. If you're online, you can't see the room. You're the only ones online. This place is packed. You are the only ones online. Since you've quarantined yourself after church, you want to go to your restaurant probably. Yeah, I, it dawned on me. Had I known, I'd have changed the sermon and done Pilate washed his hands. You know, Gene, are you ever serious? Not, no, not really. I'm not really worried about it. It, it dawned on me, the virus only attacks, or tends, tends to attack people over 60, so I'm in great shape. So it is what it is. Glad to have you, glad to have you, you brave people. Just don't shake my hand. It's a safe place. you. Okay, enough of that stuff. We're with the... Uh, <laughs> I was glad when they said go to the house of the Lord. I think it ought to be fun every week. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. We're looking at those feasts, because those feasts tell us about Jesus. And the more we know about Jesus, the better it is. The more we know about Jesus, the better our life is. The more we know about Jesus, the more we're in a position to love him. I've discovered the more I knew about my wife, the more I loved her. And these feasts demonstrate Jesus. Those Old Testament feasts tell the story. The more we know about those feasts, the more we know about our faith. It, it all begins to come together. A lot of dates in them, a lot of details. And the Old Testament is not just a series of unrelated stories. It's a theme of God reaching out through Christ. And it's told through those feasts. As people observe those feasts every year, well, they learn more about Jesus. And, and again, if those feasts are that, that important, why don't we do them today? Because those feasts taught about Jesus coming. It, it would make no sense to do them now. He's already been here. But Jesus said, a new feast I give you, and it's, of course, Holy Communion. But the fact that we don't participate in those feasts anymore don't mean they're not important. Because they give us the details of Jesus, and that's critical to us. We've looked at the Passover feast and Feast of Unleavened Bread, how they kind of connected. Today, the Feast of the Trumpets, one of my favorites. This is, again, an event in the Hebrew calendar. As with Passover and Unleavened Bread, all Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem for this celebration. This is unique. It's not in the spring. It's at the end of the harvest. This is also called the, the Feast of Engathering. It's been called the, the, the Feast of, of, of Weeks. Here's a good example. Exodus 23, 16. Take a look at it. You must celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Offer to God the first things of your harvest, of your crops you planted in the fields. You must celebrate the Feast of Ungathering in the fall when you gather all the crops of your fields. So we're bringing the crops in, so we're in the fall. Harvest has happened. Both the, the land is now at rest after harvest. The people are at rest. But the kicker here is it's in the fall. All the other feasts tend to be in the spring. So there's no feasts over this entire long summer. Theologians have, have said this is a timeline. and It may very well be. But this gap in feasts represents something. It represents the Jewish nation failure to grasp Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. Because all these feasts are not really about us. They're about the Jewish nation. They're targeted to the, to the Jewish nation. And there are no feasts. It's quiet all during the summer. Now, yeah, God is continuing to redeem individual Jewish people. We get that. But the church is going forward, not through the Jewish people, but the Gentiles. Us. We're the ones carrying the message of Jesus, not the Jewish nation. God chose the Jewish people to work out a three-part plan. 
He would use them to write down and preserve Scripture. Yes. He would use that nation to bring the Messiah into the world. Yes. He would use them to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. No. Write and preserve the gospel? Yeah. The, the, the scripture message? Write, uh, bring the Messiah into the world through them? Yeah. But they have not succeeded in bringing the name of Jesus to the world. This leads to what is kind of a prophetic historical combination. And it's weird, history and prophecy at once. When the Jewish nation rejected Jesus, God changed his attention to proclaiming to the Gentiles. And we now live in what's called the age of the church. The age of the church is from the resurrection of Jesus to a second coming. John seemed to grasp this. John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Take a look at it. He came to his own. I slipped in Jewish nation there. His own did not receive him. But as many received him to them, I put in here Gentile nation, he gave the right to become children of God, those who believe in his name. So for the last 2,000 years, the proclamation of Jesus has basically come through the Gentiles, the church, me and you. Now, there are individual Jewish people coming to Christ. We get that. But the Gentiles have been the one now to pick up the ball. It's the age of the church. From Jesus' resurrection to a second coming, we're living in the age of the church. And God has blessed the age of the church until the prophetic end of time, which we'll talk about next week in the Feast of Tabernacles. Therefore, theologians fill this long gap in between the feasts because the feasts were teaching about Jesus to a Jewish nation. This long gap is this, is this multiple century gap between the resurrection of Christ and his second coming. This gap represents the time when the, when the Jewish nation is not being used by God the way it's designed. They're not leading the way in proclaiming Christ. This pre to the church. So now the Gentile nation is bringing the, nation, is, is bringing the name of God to the people until the second coming of Christ. And we'll get into that in, in the, the Feast of Tabernacles next week. But now, 2020, history and prophecy are coming together. The Jewish nation has been restored as a nation. Israel is recognized as Israel, United Nations, 1948. The Jews once again live in Jerusalem, which is such a key to God's timetable. God is more and more dealing with his nation, leading us toward the second coming of Christ and the finalized end of the world as we know it. This is happening today as Israel is spotlighted in the news. The king may be coming soon, as even as nations attack and try to find ways to attack the Israeli nation. But the Gentile church has bridged this huge gap between the death and resurrection of Jesus and Lent and to his second coming. The church is busy proclaiming Christ. It's what we're doing in the age of the church, proclaiming Christ, proclaiming Christ. One dot, one dot, one. Say, Gene, that's a neat gimmick. No, it's evangelism. Personal evangelism. The church is busy until he come again. And when he comes again, evangelism will end. His second coming will end that, that period of time. The age of the church. He came first as a Passover lamb who died for our sins and the perfect unleavened. The age of the church. So, this long gap of time might be the time that we're living in in a timeline that God is not using the nation of Israel the way it's designed but using Gentiles. So we finally get to the fall, and we get to summer over, and we get to come to the time of feasts of trumpets. Hebrews are invited back to celebrate. 
And like all the other feasts, remember, they kick in in Leviticus. Here it is, Leviticus 23, 23 to 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering by fire made to the Lord. Feast of trumpets, seventh month. So we're in the fall. Their seventh month it was called Trisby. It would kind of correlate with our September, October, or you know, some of the harvest season. The main purpose was to announce that seventh month because they're preparing for the atonement, that national day of cleansing of sin, that once a year when the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle blood on the mercy seat on behalf of the nation. Atonement literally means to cover. The people's sins were covered by the blood. And the Feast of, or Feast of Trumpets is 10 days before this, this time of atonement, the seventh month on the Jewish calendar. It's important because it's the last month of the religious season. God's completing his dealings with his people right now. It's the last time they're required to go to Jerusalem until next spring and we're back around to Passover and unleavened bread. Trumpets, though, are part of their culture. It's the way they communicated. Trumpets blew on the first day of every month, letting them know it's a new month. They didn't really have calendars on their iPad back then. They knew the new month had arrived. The horn blew. But on the Feast of Trumpets, they blew them long and hard. The trumpet was a ram's horn. It was God's way of communicating with them. To the ancient Hebrew, this not only represented the voice of God, but the might of God. We're going to get to that. That's pretty important. In Numbers, we see that the trumpet was used to assemble them to worship, to break camp, to arm them and alarm them to prepare for battle. It was, it was their way of communication, and part of it went back to battle, all the way back to the time of Joshua, the military general. Moses has died. He's passed on the, the mantle of leadership to Joshua, and he's to lead them into the promised land. Now, his first and most dangerous test is immediate. At the doorway of the promised land is a city. And this is the beachhead. If you're going into this land, there's no other, geographically, there's no other way to go except this way. And beachheads, as I thought about this, if you have a lot of possible beachheads, you can fool the enemy. I'm fascinated by World War II. And, and the German hierarchy understood that there was going to be a, a second front. There, we were going to come across and, and invade somewhere in the French coastline. Our, our intelligence was, was so wise, we had, we had sent counter, counter messages and we had totally convinced the German hierarchy that we were going to invade at a place called Patacalais. And they were so convinced that their, their incredible tanks, the Panzers, were prepared, lined up literally, to repel this force which they were convinced was coming to Patacalais. And so these Panzers, they, they, they had armaments all, all along the French coast in case they were wrong, but they bought into the lie. We were coming at Pas-de-Calais. They bought in so much that when we invaded in Normandy, they still believed it was Pas-de-Calais. The German hierarchy said, this is a diversion. Hitler had taken a sleeping pill. They didn't bother to wake him. They were so positive that, we were t- that, that, that this was a diversion, that Pas-de-Calais was the place. By the time they recognized the strength of our force, the time they recognized Normandy was the invasion, and they began to move the panchers and move, move personnel to repel it. It was too late. So if you're, if you're going to make an invasion and you have a lot of options, you, you can fool the enemy. Not here. 
You had one place to go. Because of the, geogra- the, the geography, you could only enter through one pathway. And the first city was Jericho. And so, not being stupid, they realized there's no other way they can invade us unless they come through us, so we're going to fortify us. They constructed these gigantic walls. They were, they were multiplied times higher than any other city, multiplied times thicker than any other city because they knew any army, any army, any army from anywhere had to come through here. Stop them now on the beachhead. The, the walls were designed to intimidate. They, they wanted you to come up and see the walls and go, forget it. Jericho, in fact, was famous particularly for the walls. If you talk to somebody in that time and say, what comes to your mind when we talk about Jericho? They go, the wall. Well, I think we get that. If I would say, what comes to your mind if I say Hollywood? Well, movie making. You know, cities are known by certain things. If, 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 I, if I would say Las Vegas, you would, well, gambling. Chicago, the Cubs. Making enemies, see? He slipped that bad boy in, didn't he? But cities are known by particular things. If I could cart you back to the time of Joshua and say, what hits your mind if I say Jericho? Oh, the wall. I mean, come on. So God's army is now approaching this impregnable city that has walls multiplied times any other cities because they knew any army's got to come through here and we're stopping them right now. And God comes to Joshua and says, here's the plan. And as you think about it, the plan's dumb. I'm not trying to be, again, sacrilegious or sarcastic. The plan's dumb. It it just makes no sense at all. He tells Joshua, here's how we're going to attack that city. March around the city. This This is not something small. This is a huge, huge city. March around the city once a day for six days. Now we're talking about like a million people. This is not 25 people taking a walk. Take the entire nation and walk around this gigantic city once a day for six days. Don't you think the people at Jericho at the top looking down were going, that's weird. A little parade. They're wasting their time. They're going for a walk. Are they going to, are they going to try to invade? A daily, a daily parade. Is this not the stupidest thing you ever saw? Seven priests were to follow this multitude blowing trumpets, followed by a group of priests who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, followed by the rear guard. In absolute silence. No one was to say a word as they once a day did this gigantic walk. Only sound is the trumpets. I, I, I keep going back. Look at those people at, at the city of Jericho. They'd hear the trumpets. They'd walk up the huge steps to go, odd. What do they think? On the seventh day, once a day for six days, on the seventh day, they were to march around the city seven times. Again, totally silent. At a certain point, Joshua was to give a command for the priest to blow one long blast of the horn. At that sound of the blast of the horn, all this gigantic multitude of people were to scream at the top of their lungs. Shout at that moment. And as they screamed, the walls come tumbling down. You heard the song. And the Hebrew nation is now allowed to go ahead and take the city. Joshua carries the battle plan to the T, and that's exactly what happened. As God spoke he used the trumpets to fight the battle for them. And he began to be known as the horn of our salvation. Comes from here. He is our deliverer. Our salvation is the greatest battleground, and he is the trumpet that tears the walls down. He is the horn of our salvation. He fights our battles for us against our spiritual enemy. 
King David. I mean, from then on, we see that this terminology, you're the horn of my salvation. You defeat the walls. You tear down the enemy. Uh, t- take, a look, take a look at what, da- what David wrote. Psalm 18, 1 to 3. It's all about battle. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength. It's eh, war stuff, huh? Whom I trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I will be saved from my enemies. What's he talking about? Victory. Victory. Winning, winning a victory. And it comes back to that horn. It's about spiritual warfare. That you're in. You're in the front line. Satan always designs to steal the glory designed for Jesus. That's what the warfare is about. Stealing his glory. The only name that can be saved is the Passover lamb who is perfect unleavened bread. And now in the fall of the year, he is our conqueror. He is our savior. He has provided the harvest. God has provided. And he is the commander of our army, our conqueror. It is a feast of celebration. And Jesus marks this. He is our conqueror. He is our deliverer. The entire theme of Revelation chapter 19 is the Lamb of God as the conqueror of the army. He is our conqueror. He's conquered sin. He's conquered death. Zacharias, when he learns the Messiah will be born soon, writes a song. You ever notice this song that this guy writes? Jesus isn't even born. And take a look at the song all the way back at the beginning, Luke 1. Verses 68 to 71. Listen carefully to his song. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. He has visited, redeemed his people, raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets, who have been since the world that we should be saved from our enemies and from the land who hate us. You see it, don't you? Blessed is the Lord. He's redeemed his people, saved us from our enemies. He is our horn. The walls come a-tumbling down. He is our horn. He is our victor. Now, those first century Jews, the time of Jesus, wanted someone to defeat their oppressor, Rome. Many thought Jesus' role would be to lead in the overflow of the Roman Empire and establish the kingdom of David. Jesus has got bigger goals than Rome. He's here to defeat all evil. He's here to defeat the satanic empire and all the evil of the earth. He's attacking the source, Satan, not the symptom, the Roman Empire. And today, Jesus is the horn of your salvation. He is the commander of the army. He is the defeater of the enemy of your soul. He continues to do so. See, as we begin to get this, spiritual life is not just to survive so that we might get to the other side. It's to be lived victoriously. Even in Jesus' victory, the adversary, Satan, does not give up without a fight. There is a spiritual battle. And the wording becomes very important. Paul describes Jesus in Colossians as the victor. Take a look, Colossians 2.15. Jesus spoiled the spiritual rulers and powers of their authority. With the cross, he won the victory. He showed the world they were powerless. Okay, the key in the Greek here is the term spoiled. He spoiled the rulers and powers of Satan. Spoiled, it's a little hard to describe quickly, but it means to be carried away as a captive the way they would an ancient king that was defeated. 
if, if our army defeated another city, we would have the parade. When, when we returned home, there would be the parade welcoming the conqueror. It was always a military parade, a military practice. And the conquering general would be welcomed back with this great homecoming parade. It was called the Parade of Triumph, led by trumpets. And the general in the city, he, he, would, he would bring in the opposing king, and, an opposing general, and strip him of all of his armor, the sign of a captive. He would march him down the street, humiliating him as part of this parade. The whole city would turn out. The conquering king, the conquering general, would receive the keys to the city. He would be spoiling the enemy. The parallels to Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection spoiled, disarmed Satan. Jesus receives the key. His resurrection to heaven, imagine the grand praise, the ultimate parade, his resurrection to heaven. And the Father now gives him the key to Hades and death. Jesus is speaking, recorded in John and Revelation 1. Take a look. Revelation 1.18. I am the one who lives. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys to death and the place of the death. Jesus our horn of salvation has spoiled the powers of demons. Our Jesus has spoiled the power of Satan. Our Jesus has spoiled the power of our enemy and has spoiled them and defeated them. And now he has the keys of heaven and hell. He took them captive. You feel like, wait, Satan's running wild. No, he's out on a leash. He's out on a leash. He's not running wild. Before he dared touch Job, he had to get permission. Before he touches you, he has to get permission because the Father says, you cannot go beyond what they, can, what they can handle. I will always give them the way out because I am the horn of their salvation. I am more powerful, and I have stripped you of your authority. I have stripped you of your power because I'm the horn of, 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 of salvation. Horn represents victory. His victory makes my salvation possible because he is the horn of my salvation. No wonder he says, I'm the way. It doesn't take much insight to see the face of the trumpets. They're teaching them, we're praising God for the harvest. Our conqueror is here, and the battle is won. And I, I'm convinced the church does not understand at all the spiritual warfare of spiritual battles. So just two-second commercial after Easter, we're going to go into a series I call The Battle. That we're going to spend a few weeks talking about understanding exactly what is spiritual warfare and what's going on invisibly around you. But be careful. The closer you draw to Jesus, the more intense the battle. Sorry. The closer you draw to Jesus, the more intense the battle. And understand, we, we, we understand, misunderstand the goal here. Christ is not trying to make you a good citizen. Too many almost see Jesus following Christ as going to church a few times a month and being a good citizen. He says, wait, I'm the horn of your salvation. I'm the victor. Really follow me. Really be more and more of me. Really be the battler. Be involved in the warfare. Be involved as the horn of salvation. Because salvation is not about avoiding hell. It's about a kingdom. It's about purpose. Salvation is not about merely avoiding hell. It's about living my life that God receive glory. It's kingdom. Lived out in me. The horn of my salvation. Because Jesus is the commander. And he is my horn. This is not sin avoidance. It's purpose. It's a life purpose. 
really living and serving under our commander who is the victor because he's the horn of our salvation and all the walls come a-tumbling down that ruin me. All the walls that Satan tries to build come a-tumbling down because he blows the horn. He enters the city with the horns blowing before him and the parade of victory. When you finally have this and realize I am following the, the general, I am following the king, I am following the one of the horn of my salvation, now you become a threat to Satan. If all you're trying to do is avoid hell, you're not much of a threat to Satan. If all you're trying to do is be a better citizen because of Christ, you're not a threat to Satan. You're living out symptoms. Engage in the warfare. Become a threat to the enemy. Do not misunderstand the horn of our salvation. Jesus is here. The battler, the victor, the horn. And don't you love how Revelation begins? Revelation is about end times. And you ever notice John is taking the spirit into the future. He's taking the visions of heaven. And as he enters, Revelation 1, verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, a loud voice, that of a trumpet. The voice of a victor. The voice of victory, how appropriate. The voice of Jesus, our Passover lamb, our unleavened bread is now the horn of our salvation. It is the voice of a trumpet that he hears. It is the voice of the victor that he hears. Jesus is the voice of the trumpet. And they celebrate this fact in the feast of trumpets. He has provided the harvest one more time and the trumpet blows and the walls come down because he's the horn of my salvation the victor of my salvation. Let's stand together. Father, the, the, the feasts tell us of you. The more we know about you, the more we can fall in love with you. We don't want to guess. And I praise you for the reality that you are the victor. There's not a contest going on here. It's not a matter that if we in the church could just pull on the rope hard enough, you might win. And that's a joke. You've already won the cross, the resurrection, and all through the Old Testament, all through those centuries, you were teaching those people that we have a victor. And every wall that Satan builds can come down because the horn blows. My Christ merely steps in and I praise you and I thank you in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. A little bit of where we're heading. Next week, of course, is the Feast of the Tabernacles. It's the last of the four great feasts. A rabbi has said, if you've never participated in the Feast of Tabernacles, you've never celebrated. It is the ultimate celebration next week. Then we're going to wrap up the, 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 the uh, feasts the weeks before Easter get, teach more specific on the Holy, Holy Week, Holy Events of the Cross. One last thing. Mark chapter 8. These friends bring a blind guy to Jesus. The thing that kicks me is they ask Jesus to heal him. Why didn't the blind guy ask? He, he's got a vested interest here. He's the guy that's blind. The friends ask Jesus to heal them. It's one of, the, one of the first times that someone prayed for somebody else when they asked Jesus to heal him, which raises the question. Who am I praying for as we race toward Easter? Who's laid on your heart with one person 
once a day for one minute. I'm going to have them here. Of course, the sending verse. Let's say it together. Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. How powerful. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. God bless you. See you next week. Feast the Tabernacles. Thanks for being with us online.